I love the line that I am my Savior, I'm happy and blessed. That's true. We don't always know that's true. There's this kind of strain of theology and Christianity right now where it seems like you're going hunting for your blessing. I'm showing up for my blessing. Can I tell you, in Christ, you are already blessed. You're blessed. You're blessed because you don't ever have to do anything in order to go into the Father's presence. You're blessed because you don't have to earn anything. You don't have to do anything, even in the face of mistakes, even in the face of, of failures. There's nothing you have to do in order to know that God calls you his child and he loves you. That's the gospel. You are blessed. And he he looks at you and he says, you are mine because Jesus has already done it. So I, you, and our Savior, we are happy and we are already blessed. And the next line says that filled with his goodness and lost in his love. Oh, may that be true of us this morning. Father, we come before you. And God, we just want to be lost in your love this morning. We want to see our worries and our anxieties just lost in the presence of your love this morning. We want to see our our fears, our failures, our shames just melt away and lost in the presence of your love this morning. God, fill us uh, with an awareness that, that you have already done everything in Christ that we will ever need in order to be blessed. And that we can just sit in that and know that we are filled with your goodness. And so, God, we just praise you for that. We thank you for that. And we come in worship, giving our hearts and our, our minds to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. Big thank you and shout out to our boy band this morning. They were great. They were good. It's in sync cover band. That was awesome. <laughs> um, new, new kids on the block, Paseo style. Is that new kids on, new, new kids on Paseo? Yeah. They're so happy. Danny's so happy you're calling him a kid. He's so, so thrilled. Hey, and you'll notice that I don't have a pirate patch on this morning. Uh, I still can't, yeah. Still can't see out of the eye worth a darn, but it no longer looks scary and scaring children. So I can now go without, without a uh, pirate patch. And so I had several comments that that must mean the end of pirate jokes. And so I've got one more going out. Hopefully my last pirate joke to ever tell as a pastor ever. But I was scrolling through my Facebook feed, and this popped up, and I just felt obliged to share it this morning. <laughs> I don't know why it's on my Facebook feed, but I found that hilarious. So I was in there watching that with my pirate patch on, so there you go. <laughs> All right, there you go. Out with a bang. There you go. Hey, I'm excited to jump back into our study of of Acts together. So if you uh, have a Bible, if you turn with me to Acts chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the the chair in front of you. Uh, Grab one of those. You can follow along with us. If you don't own a Bible, take that one home. That's our gift to you. We'd love for you to have it. Uh, We we are in this, this series called Participants where we have been walking. We're now seven chapters into the story of, of God's using and building and growing the church and his activities for it. We left off last week with this, with this uh, story of Stephen. 
who's just a regular, everyday follower of Jesus. He's not one of the apostles. He's come of those, one of those that have, has placed his faith in Jesus. And he has embraced his mission uh, from Jesus, that he knows that he is called and filled with the Holy Spirit to be, uh, be Jesus' witness. That that's that's his, his mission in life, which, by the way, if you are a follower of Christ, that is also your mission. We don't have to go hunting for what is God's will for my life. It doesn't matter. I don't care what your career field is. I don't care uh, what, what age and, and stage of life you're in. If you are filled with Christ, then you have the same mission that he has given all of his believers to go be his witnesses in this world. And that's the whole point of giving the Holy Spirit, he says at the beginning of Acts. And so we see Stephen stepping into this, and he is just sharing Jesus. He is sharing Jesus with his friends. He's sharing Jesus with anybody that would listen. And along the way, we saw last week that he gets arrested and by the Sanhedrin, which the Sanhedrin is, is like the Congress of, of the Jewish people of that time. They're a pseudo-religious, pseudo-political uh, uh, grouping that, that were in charge of the temple, in charge of the Jewish people. And they bring Stephen before him, before them, and they, they're making two major accusations against him. They're saying, on the one hand, that he's going around telling people that Jesus wants to do away with the temple, that he'll destroy the temple. And on the other hand, they're teaching people, or he, they're saying that, that he He's teaching people that Jesus will do away with the customs of Moses. And so they bring the, uh, uh, Stephen before him, before them, excuse me, and they make these accusational charges. And we pick up the story there. Because what Stephen has to do now in the next 50 verses that we're about to cover, uh, don't, don't worry, we'll hit fast forward, we're not going to read all 50. Um, but he, he responds. But he doesn't respond with necessarily giving a defense of himself as much as he responds with his own accusation and indictment against the Sanhedrin themselves. And he's going to address both of those charges against himself, uh, but he's going to flip it back onto the Sanhedrin and their understanding of it. But to do that, he does it by going over 1,500 years of Jewish history to the Jewish religious leaders and scholars, which is just funny and ironic in and of itself. This uneducated, spirit-filled man saying, hey, you guys are experts in Jewish law, let's chat. And he goes all the way back to the beginning and walks them through 50 years, or excuse me, 1,500 years of history. And then he finally gets to, uh, look at the very end of, 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 of that section, look at verse 48, we'll pick it up there. He gets to where we're going to focus this morning. Over the next couple of weeks, this week and next week, we'll We'll take a look at his, at his conclusions of how he defends himself here. We're going to start with this first one and the accusation of that, that Jesus is going to do away with the temple. And here's his response. Verse 48. This is actually quoting Isaiah. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 66, the very end of Isaiah. And here's what he has to say. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne. And the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? So let's chat. He's been given the accusation that, that, that Jesus is trying to do away with the temple. And he has a very strong response to that. But in order to get to that section, 48 verses into this chapter, in the first 47 verses, he covers 1,500 years of Jewish history. And it gives him the context to make the claim that he's making there at the very end. 
And so what I want to do this morning is that I, I want to just hit pause, and each of you should have, should have gotten a Bible timeline uh, in, your, in your Bible, and I, I want to cover that same 1,500 years of history. We'll do it quickly. Don't worry. I've been, I, over, over my years of ministry, I, I am asked often by people that want to start reading Scripture, how can I start studying Scripture? And yet they are, they are confused because whenever they start reading, they just open up the Bible and, and they start reading a story and they might be in Jeremiah and there's talks of Babylon and there's talks of walls and they have no clue what, what is going on in that. So it's so confusing. Or they mo- might open up the book of Ezekiel and there's talks of a, of a will in the sky and a, and a creature with all these eyes. And they're like, I have no clue what is happening right now. So as a result, they just put down the Bible and they don't study the Bible. And it wasn't until I got to college, and I grew up in the church. I mean, I was one of those Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night kids at the church all the time. And I had heard all these Bible stories and knew Bible stories. But it wasn't until college, and I was sitting in a professor, connected all of them together on a timeline that I began to see and understand all of it. And what I find is that that's probably true for most of us, that we know individual little parts, but we don't know how it fits all together. And we have to be careful about that. So I, I, I compared it first service to trying to, to explain football to somebody. I don't know if you watched the, the joyous ending of the Chargers game on, on last, last Sunday. Sorry to pick an old wound here. But I was trying to explain that to my wife, who doesn't really care and, and doesn't know that much about football. And I'm trying to explain the last play that we can win the game on the goal line. We have four plays to get into the goal line, and not only can they do that, get, they, they fumble in the last one of the, and lose the entire game. Try to explain that. And she knows a little bit, but picture trying to explain that to somebody that doesn't know anything about football. And so you use words like a fumble and a goal line and a touchdown and a score, and they don't have a clue what football is. And yet you're using all of that to explain one singular play, and it just goes right over their head. And what you have to first do is explain what the whole purpose of football is and the whole point of the game to get them to that point that they understand why that was a big deal in the game. Does that make sense? And what we often do with the Bible is we get so zoned in on stories and we use words that, that make sense to us. So, so, but if we try to explain that to a world that doesn't have a clue and to many of us that don't have a clue about how all of the overarching of that fits together, it's just lost on us. And so what I, what I want to do this morning is, is to quickly walk through this. And I think this is something you probably should just have in your Bible that, that it will help a lot. Because we'll, as we walk through this, you'll see where all the books of the Bible fall in this timeline. And it becomes a big help in understanding what's going on there. So once you get the overarching picture, because the whole Bible is a story of God's redemption act in, in, in humanity, how he is redeeming the world back into himself through Jesus. But he's got to get there. And so what, what Stephen does, we're going to do, we're going to start at the beginning and walk through this. Now, we're going we're gonna to hit fast forward. I'm going to plow through a lot of stories, cover a lot of time here. But let's, let's connect some dots, shall we? You okay with that? Good, because I'm in charge. So here we go. 
Starting at the beginning, he creates the world. You get that, right? In the beginning, God. So he creates, and, and Genesis is a very important book. It shows that God was the originator of all of that. In Genesis chapter 12, though, is actually, and in between Genesis 1 and chapter 12, you get the story of Noah, the Tower of Babel, some big stories in there. But, but Genesis chapter 12 is actually where Jewish history begins. And it's when God shows up in present-day Iraq, in the area they call Mes- Mesopotamia, and he calls out a guy named Abram. And he says, Abram, I need you to leave your family and everything you know about life. And I want you to go to a place that I will show you eventually. And Abram's crazy. And he says, okay. And so he goes out. And you probably would too if God shows up and, and rocks your world like that in a crazy way. I don't know. Uh, and so Abram, Abram heads out. And that's the beginning of Jewish history because God makes Abraham this incredible promise. He says, listen. I'm going to make your descendants. At that point, he had no kids, and he and Sarah were, were older in life. And he says, hey, listen, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. He said, and through you, I'm going to bless you, and through you, I am going to bless all the nations. Which, pause, that is crazy. That's 4,000 years ago. Do you know what he was referring to at that moment? He's referring to Jesus and to you and I right now being blessed by having the gospel. And he told Abraham from the very beginning of, hey, I'm going to call you. And through you, I am going to send a blessing that will change the nations, that will change the world, is a, is an, a, a mention of what's coming ahead. So Abraham, as you know, goes up. Uh, he eventually, uh, there's a lot of story we're going to pass over. He has a son eventually uh, with his wife, Sarah, named Isaac. Uh, Isaac grows up. He eventually has a couple of kids, but one of them is the line that goes through. His name is Jacob. Uh, Along the way, by the way, Jacob's name is changed into Israel, which is where we get the name of Israel, which means struggle because Jacob's life was a struggle. Uh, And so that that is Jacob. Jacob has 12 kids, 12 sons. They eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. All of this, by the way, is still in the book of Genesis, and it covers a major portion of all of that. There's a major famine in all of that. And we studied one of the sons earlier this year when we studied Joseph, one of, one of the 12. Joseph is, is betrayed by his brothers. It's an awesome story. He's sold into slavery, but God is with Joseph. So Joseph is now suddenly in Egypt as a slave. If you don't know the story of, of Joseph, it's awesome. Through God's miraculous work, he goes from being a slave to being second in command over all of Egypt, right under the Pharaoh. It's an incredible story of God. A famine hits, and now God has in place a, a person that's a descendant of Jacob, so that when Jacob and the 12 sons, his brothers, um, don't have food, they come to Egypt, and guess who they find sitting with the Pharaoh? They find little brother. He's able to take care of them. There's a really cool story. But now the Israelites are in Egypt. The Pharaoh loves Joseph. So he gives Joseph all the best land in Egypt, and the Israelites get to go hang out and build their houses there. They are now Egyptians. You fast forward a little bit. Joseph dies. The Pharaoh dies. And we are now to the end of Genesis alone. But it sets up. There's a reason the word Genesis means beginnings. It sets up the stage for the rest of the Bible. They are there uh, in, in Egypt. And pretty soon a Pharaoh is in charge that doesn't like that the Israelites have control of the best parts of Egypt. So instead of letting them stay there, he turns them into slaves. If you read the beginning of Exodus, they begin crying out because they're being forced to make stones and bricks for 
their buildings, if you know much about Egyptian history and, and their, their uh, architecture, what were their buildings made out of? Who built them? Jewish slaves. And they're crying out, uh, saying, God, help us. God raises up the story of Moses. Moses is a pivotal figure there. Uh, Moses and, and, and Stephen hits on the story of Moses in, in his talk. Moses comes to a place of prominence. He goes out into the desert because of a variety of events. He has a talk with God at a burning bush. It's a crazy story. It's awesome. Um, he comes back. He tells the Pharaoh, let my people go. There's all these, these plagues. It's crazy. It's awesome. Uh, eventually he says he'll let them go. He takes the Israelites. They run to the Red Sea. The Red Sea parts. They get out onto the other side of the Red Sea. It closes down. You all know the story. Some of you know the story. Some of you don't. It's an awesome story. They're out in the wilderness now, and he's taking them to what is present-day Israel called the Promised Land. Out there, he crosses by a mountain, and God says, hey, Moses, come hang out with me at the top of the mountain. So Moses leaves everybody down at the bottom of the mountain. He goes up to the top of the mountain, and he and God have a powwow for several days. It's an awesome time. This is like the most sacrilegious way to explain the Bible ever. <laughs> he and God have a great conversation. God explains a lot to him. God gives him the Ten Commandments. He comes back down off the mountain to give the Ten Commandments and, and God's deal with the people, uh, the Ten Commandments, and he finds that the Israelites are out there and they're all worshiping something fake, a golden calf that they had made because Moses had been away for too long up the mountain. He gets mad, throws the stones down, they crack. God has to repeat the situation again, and, and he, he gets to rewrite them down on tablets. And so here we are. He leads them through, through the desert. They're figuring out what it means to be God's people. They're not happy about it. We'll hit a lot on that next week. They eventually get to the promised land. There's people in the promised land. We're still, by the way, in the book of Exodus. We're two books in. We haven't even crossed into the rest of the Bible yet. All right, so get to the promised land. They're scared of the people in the promised land. They don't think God can beat them, and so God gets mad at him, and he, they make them go back to the desert for another 40 years. That generation of adults needs to die out. Their children get to be the one that go into the promised land. By the time that happens, Moses is a very old man. He disobeys. God doesn't let him get to go into the promised land. The book of Exodus ends. We're now to the book of Joshua. Joshua gets to lead them into the promised land. Let's pause real quick. Those first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy, is the story that we just covered. Those are called the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They carry massive importance to Jewish people. That is their book of the law. It is the Torah. And so we, by the way, um, it's interesting stuff. And I, I, I know a lot of you uh, like have made the commitment of going, uh, hey, I'm going to read the, the Bible in a year, uh, this year, I'm, I'm going to read through it. And you, you get through Genesis, you get through Exodus, and then you get to Leviticus and you go, what is this? <laughs> I'm quitting because that is crazy stuff. Like, I don't understand anything that's going, you can skip Leviticus. It's okay. That's like all the laws and stuff. Just skip over that. And the pastor told you, you could do that. Jump back into to numbers. It gets interesting. Deuteronomy has some parts. I'm telling you, it's okay. God's not going to be like, oh, you skip Leviticus. You didn't read it's not a measurement of your holiness. You can skip over that and keep on going. So now we get through the first five books of the Bible, and you get up to the story of Joshua. Joshua leads them into the promised land, and some neat things begin happening. But here's the issue. They are 12 tribes. This has now been hundreds of years since the 12 brothers. They have built up big, massive families. Each of those families that go back to one of those 12 brothers are a 12 tribe, and they don't get along. 
right? They don't like each other that much. They get that they're all like kind of cousins and they intermarry and all that, but, but they get all that. They don't like each other. So they get to the promised land. If you read the beginning of Joshua, they divide up the promised land. They're like, hey, you guys go over there. Nobody likes you guys. You guys go over there. We'll go over here. And they divide up the land to the 12 tribes. Does that make sense? All right. Except for here's the problem. Over, over what comes, over and over again, there are people that already live in the promised land that don't like that the Israelites have come in. So they keep on attacking them. So you have people that raise up that unite the tribes together to go defeat enemies. Like, I know you're my cousin, I don't like you, but we need to go beat up that guy. And so they're like, okay. And so they join up and they go, and those are called judges. So you get the book of Judges. You get Samson. There's a female judge named Deborah. She, she will raise up uh, and they go defeat the enemy. They come back and then they split her back out into their 12 tribes again. This comes on and it goes on and on and on until eventually... They get to the point, and it's no longer other small kingdoms that are attacking them. It's major big kingdoms that are attacking them. And they say, we need a king. We need to all unite as 12 uh, tribes into one. And so you get to a major character named Samuel, who's a prophet. Samuel anoints the very first king of Israel. That's Saul, okay? Uh, Saul is a king. He's faithful for a little bit, has some struggles towards the end of his life. Underneath him is the next king, David. You know the story of David and Goliath. David grows up as a little boy, faithful to God, eventually becomes king. David's a bloody king. He's in fights all over the place, battles all over the place, and, and, and he's, he's good at that. At the end of his life, his son, he has a son with one of his wives named Bathsheba named Solomon. Solomon becomes king. You probably heard of Solomon the wise. We have much of, of, of him. Those are the three major kings of the Israel. Israel. At Solomon's death, uh, by the way, Solomon married hundreds of women and hundreds of concubines, and I mean hundreds, and with them, they brought in their religions from all over the world. He married, that's how Solomon, while David built the kingdom by beating up everybody, Solomon built the kingdom by marrying everybody's daughters, right? And so that is what he did. And so he just brought them in, and he got wealthy, and he brought them, and they brought all their other religions. And so in the aftermath of Solomon's life, idolatry is a major issue amongst the Israelites. And they are worshiping all these different queens, different gods that they brought with them. And that's where we find Solomon. This, by the way, is about 930 BC, where you see the split there. So you're about 930 years before Jesus. The kingdom of Israel splits in two. And this is huge to know. All right. You have 10 kingdoms, Ten of the tribe that go to the northern kingdom. So ten tribes uh, will go to the north with a king uh, named, named Jeroboam. And he takes, he takes ten of them and he heads to the north. Two of the tribes, including Jerusalem and the tribe of Judah, where Jesus will come out of his line, go to the south. They become Judah. Which, by the way, if you're reading the Bible and you hear it talk about the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, that's what it's talking about. It had split into two. And at times they fight against each other, and at times they join with each other to fight Egypt or to fight other places as they come along. So we're, we're now here, and you can follow the story of what's happened. Now we get to the prophets, which are, are my favorite part of the Old Testament. I love the prophets. And so some of the prophets were prophets to the northern kingdom of Israel. And the prophets all had a pretty similar message. Stop worshiping other gods. You made a deal to follow Yahweh. You're no longer following Yahweh. You're mistreating the poor. You're doing all these things that don't look anything like Yahweh. Quit that. Or God's coming. Uh, and they don't listen to that. All right? So you have the northern prophets there. My favorite of all the prophets is Amos. 
he throws he throws haymakers. That was, by the way, Martin Luther King Jr.'s favorite. He talks, you'll hear him quote Amos Lott, let, let justice flow down like river in a never-ending stream that's straight from Amos. Um, Amos talks a lot about mistreatment of the poor, uh, similar to, to Micah as well. The northern kingdom of Israel does not listen. They don't listen. They don't repent. They don't turn. So somewhere around 720 BC, the kingdom of Assyria comes in, the empire of Assyria comes in and wipes them out, destroys them. And they become what are called the 10 lost tribes of Israel. They're done. Uh, never, never to be heard of again. Um, and so that, that timeline is cut off. The southern kingdom, simultaneously to all this, watches that happen. And so, so much of your Bible is about the place of, of those kings. And so, if you're reading First and Second Kings, it can get confusing because it's talking about the king of Israel and the king of Judah, and it's talking. So that's what's going on. You have all these prophets underneath, right there in blue, that are preaching to Judah, and they're preaching the same message: repent, stop doing what you're doing. God is gonna gonna do the same thing to you. Did you not see what happened to your cousins in the north? Stop that. Quit that. They don't listen. This time, it's the kingdom of Babylon. Babylon comes, and in 587 B.C., they destroy Jerusalem. And it begins what is called the Babylonian exile. Babylon is present-day Iraq. They come in. They take the wisest and the wealthiest of, and the, the, uh, of the young people of Jerusalem. They take them back to present-day Babylon, uh, present-day uh, um, um, Iraq, and, and they, they put them in place. The, the book Daniel and the, the prophet Ezekiel both occur during that time. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, Daniel in the lion's den, those stories come during that exile as they are in ba Babylon. At, in 538 BC, the kingdom of Persia rises up and they destroy Babylon. And the, empire, the Persian empire comes along. Darius releases the Jewish people. They get to go back to Jerusalem. That's where you get Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, and, and, and the story of, of Esther during that period. And then you get the prophets as they begin rebuilding. All right, hit pause. We got to this point. That's the Old Testament in a really fast nutshell, okay? What I love about that is you can place that directly over world history, and that matters. Because sometimes it feels like we're worshiping a fairy tale. And you can place this directly over world history. We know these dates are, are rooted down in, in Israel's story in the midst of all that. If you want to follow along and know if, you, if you're a fan of world history, Assyria gives way to Babylon. Babylon gives way to Persia in 538, somewhere around 330 uh, B.C., which happens right in that intertestimonial period. There's about a 400-year gap where the Old Testament leaves off and the New Testament picks up. In that, in that gap there, it's called an intertestimonial gap, um, you have Alexander the Great de destroys Persia. He starts what is the, the Greek Empire. The Seleucid Empire comes after him. That goes up uh, until about 100 years before Christ's birth. And then you have the rise of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire is, it, in 60 BC takes over Israel. And by the time Jesus is born, he is birthed into the Roman Empire. And we pick up the story. Does that make sense? And I think it's important to understand all that history. And so now, take that with you. By the way, um, the wisdom literature section in all of that, um, there's a couple of books. I don't know why I left them out. I, I wasn't thinking straight. Jonah and Lamentations would also go in that wisdom literature section. But that, that, all of that is occurring, uh, and you can, you can picture and now help you as you're reading. 
You're familiar with the New Testament now. Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, his story, Acts, where we are now and studying. It's the story of the church in the aftermath of Acts. Boom, the letters to the various churches. And we are studying that explosion. In Acts, the gospel goes from Jerusalem and it begins going to the ends of the earth like Jesus promised. And so the letters of the New Testament are written to all of the different, church, different churches around, uh, around the world. By the way, Hebrews probably was not written by Paul. I just didn't have anywhere else to put it, so I put it there. Um, but as you, as you get into all of that, so you following along? Follow along, okay. I know that was a lot and you were drinking from a fire hydrant there. You can, you can, you can hold on to that. Here's why all of that matters. Stephen, by the way, shows an incredible grasp of scripture when he is explaining Jesus to somebody else. Which means, how did Stephen understand all of that? It's probably because Jesus explained it to the disciples, and the disciples, a bunch of fishermen, none of them religious experts, explained it to Stephen. He listened to sermons. Maybe he took notes. Um, and he, it's gone to his heart. And now he's standing in front of the religious experts of the law and the history in the Sanhedrin, and he's sharing with them. And remember, their major accusation is, that Jesus is wanting to do away with the temple. And what, what Stephen will say is on this timeline, he says, listen, it was God who called out to Abraham, and that happened in Iraq. And it was God who sustained Israel through Joseph, and that happened in Egypt. And it was God who led Moses through the desert, and that happened out outside of the promised land. And it was God who established them in the promised land to start with. All of that was God, and much of that happened outside of this location and time, right? And then if you look right at the very end, right before we read, look, look at what he says about the temple. And this is what eventually will get him killed in many ways. Look at, look at verse, verse 45. He said, after receiving the tabernacle, which the tabernacle was like a mobile worship center where they would tear it up and, and build it up and tear it down during the desert. After receiving the tabernacle, um, Joshua brought it with them when they took, it, took the land from the nations God drove out before him. And it remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor. And he asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. Are you following this? He says, it wasn't God that told you to build the temple. David asked, God, I love you a whole bunch. Can I build you a place? And God goes, okay. But David, you don't get to build a place. Solomon is the one that builds a place. And look at what he then says is God's response about that place. Quoting Isaiah himself, verse 48. However... The Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. In other words, God is going, that's cute. That's a nice house you built for me. I made all of this, all right? So you can, can, can try to put me in that house, but I, I, I don't live there. And do you hear Stephen's response to what he's saying? You're accusing Jesus of wanting to do away with the temple. But you idiots don't understand this whole temple-God relationship to start with. He doesn't live there. He owns it all. But here's why that matters. Do you guys play Monopoly ever? I mean, if you have like five hours of time and you feel like devoting to Monopoly. 
We made the mistake one time playing with our kids, and it went on forever, and Ellie kicked our tails. She got boardwalk and park place in the same game, and she controlled the board, and we gave her all of her money. And now every time that we have game night as a family, she wants to play Monopoly, and we're all like, we're not, we can't do that, we're out, right? But that's why they call it Monopoly, because if you can control the board, you control everybody else that's playing the game, and that's how you win the game is you get control. And do you know what the, the Sanhedrin and the priests, their, their theology had been? What developed, while it didn't start there with Solomon, what had developed was God lives in the temple. That's where he is. And guess who controls the temple? The priests and the Sanhedrin. They control this whole religious board. So if you are a religious person and you are trying to connect with God, they have taught you have to come to the temple to connect with God. But do you remember the story of what happened when Jesus was on the cross and to the curtain of the innermost place where God was housed? What happened? The curtain, curtain tore in two. What did that represent? Jesus broke out of the box. <laughs> Jailbreak Jesus style, right? God does not live in houses made by human hands. And so his whole message is you can't put God in a box. You can't control him. Jesus, Christianity is Jesus uncaged. That is what Christianity is, that nobody monopolizes God. Nobody minimalizes God into, into being able to control him. All right, so that's Stephen's point. You got it? Now let's jump out of history and bring it into our present day life, shall we? What does that mean for you and I? Well, I think you and I need to heed Isaiah's word as well. Because we keep trying to put God in our boxes as well. And God does not live in houses made by human hands. And yet it's nice to have God in controlled little boxes where God is tame and he only does the things that I like for him to do. And we try to relegate the God of the universe into things that we create. Because we understand that. Here, Mark, come be God for me. Come here. Have a seat, God. Let me show you what I mean. I think one of the biggest boxes we put God is is the same box the Jews were putting him in, and that's the box of religiosity. It says, God, I want to relegate you to a time and place where I can choose to come to you. So, God, your place is Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 1030, all right? 1030? You like God at 1030, Okay. God likes it at 1030. God wants to sleep in. Okay. So God, you're there. And I will come to you and I'll worship and, I'm, and I'll get my God stuff on. We will have our God moment. It's good. And maybe throughout the week, I might wake up and I'll have a little quiet time when I can make time for it and we'll have some more God moments. But God, you regulated there because now I got to go to work and it's a dog eat dog world. And, and I, I got to, sometimes I got to do what like the world has to do. But it's okay, I'll come back to God later on. And God, you stay there. Don't tell me how to, how to respond here, right? And we like God relegated to places where it's comfortable, except for that's not Christianity. Christianity is that God is no longer relegated into a box. Put by, you have to hold my hand down, Mark. Come on. This, is, this isn't awkward. You're good. You have soft hands. I like that. Um, Christianity is that God is not reserved into a time and place. He is with you always. Jesus is given the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
The whole point of the Holy Spirit is that God has broken free of the boxes that we have tried to put them in, and he is with us, which means that when I'm at work, the Holy Spirit is with me. When I'm at Chargers games and I want to yell at the top of my lungs or at a TV for a stupid sporting event, and I just want to unleash every curse word I ever know because they can't score from the one-yard line, <laughs> God is with me. When, when, I'm, when I'm having constructive conversations with my wife where I'm being constructed <laughs> and I want to dis- I, I defend myself, God is with me. And I don't have the ability to relegate him back over here so I can just give her a piece of my mind. I'm a child of God in that moment and he's with me. You following me? All right, you don't have to hold my hand anymore. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Good job, God. But I don't think religion is the only box we put them in. I think we put them in all kinds of boxes. I think we put them in boxes of of our shame. It says, God, you could never use me because I've done blank and blank and blank. We, we put them in boxes of our inadequacies, of I'm not smart enough, God, so you can't use me in those ways. Let me tell you, if the sentence ever starts with can't, with God, you have put them in a box. We, we, we put them in a box of our comforts, of going, no, I'm not going to do that, God. I get that you're like calling me to go do some of those things, like, but that makes me uncomfortable. So I need you to get back in your box, God. We put them in the boxes of our preference. God, I, I like, I like when, when, when you look like this, sound like this, and act like this. So all these other worship styles and, and sounds, I, I don't, that must not be you because I don't prefer that. So that got put back in your box. We put them in boxes of political agendas. Come on. God, you must think exactly like I think and vote exactly like I vote. We put them in boxes of preconceived notions. Never mind, Scripture is written so that we can know God as God has explained himself. I get all that, God. I like you the way that I explain you, the way that I think you are. We all have boxes. But God does not live in houses made by human hands. In fact, the whole story of Christianity is the story of how God came down from heaven to humanity to show us who God is. And humanity got so uncomfortable with that because it meant that if God is that, they were going to have to change everything about themselves that they just killed them. And what did they do with them? They literally put them in a box, caught a cave, caught a grave, right? And then three days later, what happened? God broke free of the box we tried to put him in. The story of Christianity is the story of God uncaged. And he's with us everywhere we go. I don't know what boxes you might feel God beginning to push against in your life, but let him do it. Some of you, he's calling to do some big things into missionary endeavors and you don't want to listen to that, so you stuff that back down into a box because that's uncomfortable. Some of you, he's, he's calling you to change the way you're parenting or change the way that, that you're, you're a married person or, or to change uh, how you're interacting in your job. I don't know what he, but, but we want to, st- what is God calling you to do? 
And may he break free of the boxes like he did to the grave. Let's pray. Father, as we just sit here and and see this awesome storyline of you throughout creation, not dependent upon humanity, you doing your thing to redeem humanity. And yet, God, we continue to try to control you. We continue to try to turn your story into a story all about us. We, we continue to try to force you into what makes us comfortable, God. But I, I just thank you for Stephen's words this morning that, that you do not fit in whatever box we try to fit you into. You break free of them all. And praise be to you that you do, God. That we don't have to go through priests. We don't have to go through religion to get to you. you you're with us all day every day. So God, as as your people, as we just sit before you, we celebrate that this morning. You're a God that that is with us, that, that wants to use us, that is transforming this world. And we just sit under that this morning and pray and thank you in that in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand up this morning? And I just want to point out one last little thing. As you look at that timeline, you know what I I love about that timeline? That timeline is a Bible timeline, but it's also the story of God's redemptive work in the world. That he started with Abraham with Jesus in mind. But can I tell you, he also started with Abraham with you and I in mind? That we're going to get to heaven and you're going to see that timeline expanded from that moment. And God is going to show us the history of the world and how Jesus began to get into every nook and cranny, every nation. And somewhere on that timeline, you're going to see your picture, your little icon above it. It's going to have your name. And I think to the degree that you and I will step into the mission of what that means, that we take our place in this timeline, there will be splinters off of that. And they'll go, and this young lady knew Christ because of you. And this young man came. And there'll be splinters off of that. That's called making disciples. And it happens when Christians step into the mission to be the witnesses that God has put his spirit in us to be, right? But I think it happens when we stop putting God in the box of Sunday morning where it's comfortable. Say, okay, God, what do you have for me? I'll step into that. This morning, we're just going to celebrate together. We're going to celebrate that our God is a great big God. And he's not bound in by your failures, by your anxieties, by your struggles. He's a great big God. We're going to worship that together. Thank you, Lord, for not being a God that can be housed anywhere. Your glory far exceeds any of our imaginations. God, wrap us up in a deep, excited understanding of how big you are. The heavens are your footstool. (laughs) You created the whole thing. We just give ourselves to you in worship.